You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Steve. Today we are continuing in Romans. Uh, for everyone that's been joining us, we've made it through chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, and now we're moving into chapter 3. Um, chapters 1 and 2 of Romans really has started off um, talking to us a lot about judgment, a lot about sin, right? And Paul starts in chapters 1 and 2 talking to us first off about how everyone will be judged, right? No one gets out from under that judgment. doesn't matter who you are, whether it's Jew, Gentile, Christian, atheist, doesn't matter, everyone will be judged. Um, and then he mentions at the end of chapter 2, where we were last week, he mentions the fact that everyone will be judged, and then he mentions kind of what that judgment is going to be based upon. And he sort of throws the church in Rome into a little bit of a dizzy because he these are these are people who are Jews and now Christians, and that's why Pastor Sean kind of substituted that word in, and we're going to see it today as well. Um, but he starts to tell them, listen, you're not going to be judged on what different, you know, what different ordeals you do. You're not going to be judged on liturgy. You're not going to be judged on, um, you know, what parts of the law you complete and what parts you don't, whether you do prayers three times a day or four times a day, whether your prayers are longer than other people's, right? And the point of this being that where Paul really focuses is he says, you know, listen, being a Jew or Christian, and that's really what he's saying, and I'll tell you, we, we're going to substitute that word a lot today, because the people Paul's talking to here in Romans are Christians. They're people who believe in Christ, and they're, but a lot of them had been Jews. Um, as you guys know, probably from reading the Bible, right? The first place that the word Bible pops, or the word Christian pops into the Bible, is in Acts. Luke writes about it and how some of the people in the church in Antioch started using that um, word, or followers of Christ, or little Christs, right? Christians. But the book of Acts was written about 10 to 20 years after Romans. So at this point, that wasn't necessarily a term everyone was, was used to. So really, everyone who were Christians were, from most people's standpoint, Jews, who recognized Jesus to be the Messiah and put their, heart, their faith and their hearts in Christ. So when he utilizes this term here, he's talking to Christians. They just necessarily didn't use that word yet. And so that's why it kind of works both ways as we talk about it. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul states to them, and he kind of emphasizes, listen, in God's sight, a Christian is someone who has faith. They're someone who has the presence of the Spirit of God in their heart. And they are someone who inwardly has faith in Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah. That's what a Christian is. It's not someone who you know, outwardly looks like they're more holy than everyone. It's not someone who um, has all of these different religious outward appearances to them. Um, it's really a heart-based issue. And that's where judge, when, when we're judged, we're going to be judged on that. And so now he moves into a little bit more of this discussion on righteousness and on judgment. And we're going to see that there's a reason for this as we, come, as we come to the end of our reading today. We're going to kind of wrap it up. But he comes in a little bit hot, talking about judgment, talking about nobody really is righteous in the eyes of God. Um, and the first piece that he starts with here, um, when we're talking about everyone will be judged, 
is in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew or the Christian? If everyone's judged, what advantage has is there to being a Christian? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews, the Christians, were entrusted with the oracles of God, or the Scripture, the law. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness um, nullify, or does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil first, good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul's going to start us off from an, in, in, an interesting point here, and I wanted to kind of touch base on it so you can understand where he's coming from. Um, Paul was an interesting character to begin with. As many of you know, Paul was a Jew. Paul was also a Roman. And that actually worked in his favor in the fact that he got a lot of benefits from that. Part of that was education. He was educated in, with Roman education. He also was very well educated in, as a Pharisee in Jewish education. Part of being a Roman, though, and being in that culture is that when Paul does public speaking, when Paul is presenting an argument, um, he's going he's to utilize a very well-known technique here. right? The Greek philosophy technique of doing an argument, which was 300 years before Paul, Right, and would be well known with the Romans too, is after you start to talk about your point, which Paul has been doing for chapters one and two, you then talk, you basically then present your opposition's point, and then you denounce that. So before the person that you're kind of arguing with has a chance to talk, you give your point, and then you say, you're going to say this, and this is how I answer that. So then when it's their turn, they really don't have much to say anymore. Because you already assumed what they would say, and you answered that. And Paul starts chapter 3 with three questions that he says are kind of the opposition. It's what people say. In my travels, I've heard people say this. They've, when I tell them about judgment, about righteousness, they ask me these questions. So I'm going to tell you those, and then I'm going to answer them for you. So that you can understand and we can move on. And we'll see that... Paul's a bit tricky, too, because he's, he's, I mean, God chose Paul for a reason, right? And Paul, a lot of it is who Paul is and his gifts. And Paul states these questions, he answers these questions, and he uses them to point out three truths for us that we're going to talk about once we've looked at these questions. So the first question that Paul brings up is, if everybody is judged, what advantage is there to being a Christian? If God's going to judge everybody, then why am I going to be a Christian? Why am I going to follow the, you know, why am I going to do what I'm told here? Why do I have to go to church every Sunday? Why do I, why are all these things, why should I have to do all this if everyone's judged? And to be, it's interesting that this first choice, or this first question, shows you a little bit about the heart of the people asking it. 
Paul is trying to talk about the living God. He's trying to explain to people salvation. He's trying to explain to people when we die, what happens? When, when you know, how does God view us? And the first question everyone has is, what's in it for me? Right? Well, what's the advantage here for me? Well, then why shouldn't I just do what everybody else does? What advantage is there in being a Christian? And Paul says, you know, interestingly enough, every advantage is here. And the big advantage that you have as a Jew or Christian is that as a Jew or a Christian, we have God's Word. God has given us, yes, we're going to be judged like everyone else, but we have the rule book. As Christians, we have Scripture, so we know what God's expectations are prior to judgment. That's a huge advantage. We know what God says we should do. We know how, you know, how we're supposed to live our lives. We know God's law, God's expectations, and it's all been li listed out for that. And that's a huge advantage. And that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're it doesn't matter whether you're Christian, Jew, in, in his time period. Now we could say Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic. It doesn't matter what any of that is, right? Um, none of that gives us an advantage or makes us righteous on its face. Because it's the Word of God that gives us the advantage. And that's Paul's point here. You don't have the advantage because you call yourself a Christian. You have the advantage because you have the Word of God. So if we're thinking about this in, in, in applicable terms, right? Uh, I've worked a number of jobs in the last six, seven years that require me to travel a lot. And I used to have to travel to Liberty, New York. Anybody know where Liberty is? Yeah, a couple of people, right? So Sullivan County, it's about two hours south of here. Um, and the best way to get to Liberty, New York from my house is to drive to Schoharie and drop down Route 30 all the way down to Route 17. And so when I would do that, I'd punch Liberty, New York into my GPS on my phone and put it in. And the first time especially that I drove down there, um, I jump on Route 30 and I'm going around and my my phone is telling me, turn left, turn right, you know, take this road so many miles, and I'm just loving life. Da, 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 da. Well, you hit a certain point on the way to Liberty where there's some mountains and I think a state park, and your phone goes out. And it's usually when you're halfway up like a one-lane hill in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden the phone starts spinning, like you get that little spinny dial that says it's thinking, and, and all of a sudden the map doesn't show up anymore. Right? Do you want to talk about anxiety? I was like, uh, do I? I guess I just stay on this road and hope that my that the GPS kicks back in. I hope I get cell coverage pretty soon. Um, and that first trip, especially, was very, very stressful until I came down. And it, luckily, it's only about a 10, 15 minute piece on the same road, and then the phone kicked back in, and it kind of you know recentered itself and found me. And I was like, oh, whew. Okay, I was a little concerned there because I was lost for a second. I had no idea if I missed a side road or if I went down or up the wrong mountain. I was really kind of lost. When it came back on, the relief came back on to me because all of a sudden I knew now where I had to go. The directions were in front of me again. 
I knew what turns were expected. I knew basically where it was going to get me in the final direction, or the final destination. Um, God's word is kind of like a roadmap for us in that instance. It tells us the expectations. It tells us the routes we should be taking. Right, so to have a GPS is a to me having that GPS is a tremendous advantage over someone who just decided I kind of know the direction of Liberty, New York, and took a drive. They probably are still in that state park somewhere. But the point being is, like that GPS, God's words only its its true advantage comes in whether I put my trust in it and whether I follow it. Having my phone with a GPS on the seat not turned on, or having my phone with the GPS on and I don't listen to the directions, doesn't help me get where I'm supposed to go. My GPS gets me where I'm supposed to go because I believe it. Right? At no point do I go, that's not the way, and I just start turning off in my own direction. What's this GPS thinking about? Um, Right? I always listen, and I kind of put my trust in that. Way back in the old days, I'm an old person, I know, I used to use, an, I used to use a map, and that's crazy. Right? But when I traveled a lot, we used to have, I used to have a map that you could open up, and I'd find my route, and I'd make sure I'm staying on the right roads. But again, my faith was in that map. I never just went, oh, this map's garbage, and threw it out the window and said, I'll wing it from here. Right? That's a great way to get lost and get way off the right path. And so here, you know, Paul is telling us, listen, the advantage you, that we have as Christians in being judged and the fact that everyone is judged by God is that God gave us his expectations. God gave us the GPS. God gave us the map. But you have to believe it and you have to follow it. This kind of leads into another piece. Once he's set this down for us and said, listen, God's word, the scriptures are, is, is their advantage you have. So if you just want to say there's no advantage, I might as well not do this. Well, you do have an advantage. And here's, here it is up front. The second thing he says is one of the other questions I often hear from people, does unbelief cancels God's faithfulness? Well, listen, God made these promises to us, but... If some people don't believe, does that mean that God doesn't have to fulfill his promises? Does it mean that we miss out on God's promises? Right? Is this a setup? It's kind of the thing that he's saying people might ask, right? Well, listen, God said that there's these promises that God gave to the Jews that now it's been expanded to the Gentiles through, through Christ. Right? It's expanded to anyone who believes in Jesus. But what if some people don't believe? Does that mean that God doesn't have to follow his promises anymore? Because if that's the case, again, these are questions that are looking for a, a loophole or a way out. Right? They're from people who doubt what Paul's preaching, and they're trying to come up with a loophole or an issue. So they're saying, you know, again, why should I jump into this if you know, the guy next to me doesn't believe, so it means that none of this has to get followed through on? And Paul kind of kicks back to this too, and he says, you know, listen, he starts off by saying, may it never be. Um, I think in my translation I said, um, by no means. But in the Greek that Paul's writing in, he utilizes, he says, may it never be, 
which is actually like the strongest way of saying no. It's like, absolutely not. God forbid. May it never be. And he's like, that's completely wrong too. So listen, you know, just because we mess up doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. God is always faithful because God is always true and God is perfect. So even when we screw up, God still upholds his end of the bargain. He still upholds him, himself, and his promises. So you can't just say, well, I'm not going to do this because God might not because not everyone's on board. He says, matter of fact, he said, if everybody in the world were a liar, God would still tell the truth because God is always perfect. He said, a matter of fact, and this is where it comes to connect with what he talked about last week. He says, a matter of fact, nobody's righteous. It's not just the guy next to you who might not believe or the guy next to you who might not follow the law or may not be able to do the law. He said, matter of fact, nobody does. So you're not just talking about a couple people might ruin this for everybody. Nobody can fulfill this. But again, God was so true and so full of grace and mercy and love that he, he looked down and saw nobody could do it. So he sent his only son to do it for us. That's not a setup or a rigged game. That's actually kind of the opposite. Right? A rigged game, if you go to a rigged game, and you, you know, if you went to a casino, for instance, and you put your money down, and you thought, well, it seems like the house always wins. And when nobody was winning, the house just won for everybody. That's not, that's kind of the opposite. You'd be like, whoa, wait a second. Right? And that's what Paul's saying here. Listen, you all, everybody's wrong. All of us. None of us have that capability because of sin in our hearts and sin in the world. And so God sent his only son who was born a man, lived a perfect life, which none of us can seem to do, and then sacrificed himself and was resurrected so that any of us who believe that have that option now. He stepped in and did it for us. Because he knew we were sinners. So saying that, you know, this might be a rigged game, if a couple of us don't believe or a couple of us don't do what we're supposed to, God doesn't have to either, is the complete opposite of what's going on here. God knew none of us could, and so he gave us Jesus. So, that led to a new question from some of the people when he presented them with this issue that, listen, God understands that none of us do right. God understands not everyone believes. And God sent Jesus to be born, to live a life, to die, to be resurrected, so that anyone that believes in him can have eternal life with God and go to heaven. Right? That brought up another question from people that wanted to be opposition. And they said, well, wait a second. If our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, how can he condemn us? Why not do evil so good may come? 
And that's worded a little crazy, especially from what we're used to. So let me tell you what it's saying. They're saying, wait a second. If the fact that we're sinners meant that God sent Jesus, and that shows how much God loved us, then the more I mess up in sin, the more opportunity God does, has to show that He loves us. <laughs> and so, why don't I just sin some more? Because God needs more and more opportunity. Uh, you can kind of see the ridiculousness in that question to begin with, right? <laughs> um, again, you have people that are grasping at straws trying to tear down an argument that they don't believe in. Right, And they're faced with the truth, and when you're faced with the truth and you don't like it, you try to figure out any way to make it look bad. But that's a really, you, you can tell that's like the last straw they can grasp at, because there's not a lot of logic behind that. And it's not only a ridiculous point, right? It's, it's made by people that just want to justify their own actions. Well, if God loves us and God's great and he gave us Jesus so that we have the opportunity that if we believe in Jesus, we go to heaven then let's just sin all we want so that it looks even better when Jesus forgives us. <laughs> well, so you just want to sin and you're looking for a loophole, right? You just want to be able to do whatever you want to do and then say, oh, well, now I believe in Jesus and use that as a coverall. But as Paul tells us here, wait a second, the ends don't justify the means. God is always perfect, and God is always right. And in that, God doesn't need us to mess up so that He can show He's awesome. God doesn't need us to mess up to show He loves us. It's not like showing His grace and mercy is reliant on us messing up first. right? That would be like saying, of those of you who have kids in the room, that you only can show your kids you love them after they mess up. Well, no, you show your kids you love them all the time. But when, you mess, when they mess up, that gives you another opportunity to show mercy, to show grace, to instruct. right? And he's saying, listen, God gave us Jesus because we messed up. But God already loved us, and God was already merciful and graceful before that. It was in a response to our messing up. So it doesn't mean that we get to just mess up more. In fact, what, what he's really saying here is, you know, that kind of... It's kind of demeaning a little bit Jesus' sacrifice for us by saying, oh, okay, then it's just a coverall. Let's just go do whatever we want. And he's saying, no, and really, if you, if you believe in Jesus and you believe Jesus died for us, then you wouldn't want to just keep doing the same problems that Jesus had to die to fix for us. The ends in that, mean, that aspect don't justify the means. So imagine you're driving down a highway. And you see this car fly by you doing like 100 miles an hour. And it's weaving in and out of other cars. You guys have seen cars like this, right? No matter how fast traffic's going, it's not fast enough for them. So they're weaving in and out of traffic, and they just need to get someplace way faster than everybody else. And you go, well, that's wrong. So you gun your car up to 100 miles an hour, and you start weaving in and out of traffic, and you get up next to them, and then you start doing the side swipe maneuver from the movies you've seen, right? And you're like, boom, boom, and then you knock them off the side of the road so that they stop. Well, that was awesome, because I stopped them from doing something wrong. Then the police show up, and do they say thanks and high-five you? 
No, right? You're probably getting a ticket or arrested as well. Because you broke the same law. You did the same stuff. It doesn't matter that you sinning or you breaking the law stopped somebody else. You still broke the same laws. Right? The ends doesn't, didn't justify the means. The means were bad. You did, re, you did just as much wrong in the first place to, to end it. So it doesn't justify that aspect. Um, and it would be easy, and this is what he has people. People are saying, making this argument, and then they're going, well, how could God judge us? I just did something good. By being, by being bad, I let God show people how much he loves me. So how could he possibly judge me for that? Well, because you were bad still. You can't make, it doesn't make it okay because you say, well, it lets God be even better because I'm bad. Again, it's really kind of a, a thin argument. And Paul's trying to show that here. So, in answering these three questions, Paul actually points out three, he establishes and points out three truths for us. In the first question, he, he is able to establish the importance and authority of Scripture. When he said, you want to know what advantage you have to be a Christian, you have the Word of God. You've got the GPS. You've got the map. The second one that he's able to point out in answering the second question is that God is always true and faithful even when we are not. And he uses, and he, I mean, to be, at, to be perfectly fair, the perfect example of this is Jesus. Right? Even though all of us were not we're not fair, we're not just, we all sin. God gave us Jesus and was perfectly fair and just and, and graceful in that act. And then the third truth that he's able to kind of introduce here is that there's no justification for our sin. Our actions are our own. We can't sin and then just say, well, it led to something good. Well, just because, you know, we sin, but it let God show how much He loves us. Well, God was showing how much He loved us because He was trying to help us. He was giving us an option of getting out of the consequence of that sin. That doesn't mean you rack up a bigger bill. So, now He's, answer, he's kind of thrown out these questions of, I'm imagining there may have been people in the Roman church who'd asked these. These are probably questions he got asked a lot in his travels to all the churches, in his travels throughout all of the different lands that he traveled. These are probably, it's probably like his three top questions that most people tried to throw at him. So he throws them out here and then he answers them and uses them to point out these three truths. So then he continues and Verses 9 through 18. And he says, What then? Are we Jews or Christians any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews, Christians, Greeks, atheists, everyone are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and, ruin and misery. And the way of peace that they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this leads us into our next piece, which is we're all sinners. He kind of reiterates this. We're going to be judged. Everyone's judged. I've just answered a few questions on that that I know you're going to have. So now let me reiterate everybody's sinners. And before he even starts listing evidence of us being sinners, he gives us one last objection. He says, so you think you're better than everyone else. And his point, his wording is... Um, He says, what then? Are we Jews or Christians better off? This is another thing that he hears from people. Right? So what, do you think you're better than everybody else? Are you better off than everyone else because you're a Jew or a Christian? This is kind of showing the hand of anyone who's opposing Paul at the time. Usually the red flag that tells you that someone has lost their own argument is when they fall back on personal attacks. And that's what's happened now. Paul's closed up the argument here that anybody that's trying to oppose him might have. And so the last thing they go is, well, what, are you better than us? They've got nothing left to argue with, so they try to attack Paul. They try to attack Christians, and they say, well, th then you guys just think you're better than us. That's the problem. And Paul says, it's interesting because them trying to attack Paul leads into his very point. Right? He says, no, that's exactly the opposite of what I'm telling you. He says, I'm not better than any of you. None of us are. Christians, Jews, right? He says, in fact, we're all sinners. None of us are righteous. And I'll prove that to you. And so then Paul gives us quotes in this scripture, the, the scripture that I read, um, which is verses out of the 9 through eight, the nine through 18, it's verses 11 through 18, are all kind of conglomerate. Paul quotes from uh, Psalms 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. And he quotes from all of this because, first off, remember, we've established now in point one, or in truth one, we've established the importance and the authority of Scripture. So now Paul points to Scripture, and he says, look it, here's all the places in Scripture that tell us none of us are righteous. We're all sinners. We all don't do the right thing. It says it all through that, and we've already agreed now that, that that's the authority and that's the roadmap we're looking at. And he says, you know, nobody gets out from under that. Nobody's better than anybody else. Not you, not me, not the objectors, not Paul. None of us get out from under that. We all sin. We've all lied. We've all been angry when we shouldn't have. We've all you know, burst out at people. We've all lost control of ourselves. We've, we've done many things we shouldn't have. 
we've been far from perfect. Chapters 1 through 3 here, as we've been talking of Romans, have really been hammering down our nature as sinners. And it could be easy for you sitting there going, yeah, Steve, we got it. It's been a number of weeks now, and you just keep telling us how we're not righteous, how God's judging us, right? And it's really, he's, Paul has been really hammering that point down. We're all sinners. We're all not, none of us are righteous. We're all going to be judged. So why would he do that? What's the end game here? If you're trying to teach about God's love, and you're trying to teach about Jesus Christ and, his, and the salvation through him, hammering down on this doesn't seem to be a good way to get people on your side. But there's a point here. Paul, and there's a point here that I think we can look at in Matthew a little bit uh, in, the, in the Gospels. right? Paul wants us to definitely understand this idea that we're sinners and none of us are righteous. And the reason for that we can see in Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. If you recall, this is when Jesus has just met Matthew, and he was invited back to his house for dinner. And the gospel says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What was, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what that means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. The healthy don't need a doctor. Jesus said, I came to call the sinners, not the, not the righteous. The problem is nobody seeks a doctor if everyone thinks they're healthy. I've never made an appointment to go make to go pay a copay at a doctor if I think no, but nothing's wrong with me. So this whole point of chapters one through three has been Paul trying to make sure people understand you're not healthy. You need the doctor, and that's where I'm headed here. But until you understand your need for that, you're not really going to understand how important the doctor is. So I'm not trying to beat you down. I'm trying to open your eyes. When you realize how bad the sickness is, you're really appreciative for the medicine. We all need Jesus. He was born a man, suffered, died, and was resurrected, all because we're unrighteous sinners in a sinful world. We should be hearing this today and listening to chapter 3 and Paul's arguments and then Paul's point of the fact that none of us are righteous. And we should be sitting there and thinking, wow, this is kind of an eye opener. Yeah, none of us are righteous. I understand that. I really need Jesus. I'm thankful to have Jesus. I'm thankful that I made that connection. I put my faith in Jesus. 
And it's true. Even after, even after I was saved, even after I put my faith in Jesus, I still mess up. And that shows why I need him so much. So it's a good thing if you're sitting there and thinking that. This message is for you. If you didn't really understand how bad things were and that you did need Jesus, this is also a good message for you. If you were sitting there thinking, you know, things are pretty good with me and God. I'm in a pretty good spot right now. I, I pretty much do everything I need to do, and uh, God's happy. I'm in a really good spot. This message is definitely for you too, because that's not true. <laughs> you're never going to be in a spot where you do everything perfectly, and you're perfectly fine with God on your own merit. Again, that's why we need Jesus. Right? We all sin. We all make mistakes. We all do the wrong thing sometimes, even when. So we should never think we're too comfortable. And that always points us back to Jesus. So, as we close today, if you haven't come to the realization that I really am a sinner and I am unrighteous, left on my own accord, I, I don't have, I'm not perfect and I can't ever be. And so I do need Jesus. And if that has never really connected with you before, I urge you to kind of pray with us as we close in prayer here. And I, I pray with you just to, you know, ask Jesus to come into your heart and ask Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. Ask him to come into your heart. Ask him to give you the Holy Spirit so that his death and resurrection can help to, his death and resurrection can clean that slate and can cover the sin that we know we all do.